Good morning, everybody. Not as many people as last week. <laughs> Scared away. That's okay. We are going to continue <clears throat> this morning uh, studying the relative attributes of God. Relative attributes. Think about that word, a relation. The relative attributes talk about God in relation to something outside of God. And I wanted to mention uh, two more things just about relative attributes that sometimes people, it raises a question in people's mind. And one of them is that people will say or ask, don't relative attributes imply change in God um, because God wasn't something and then he becomes something in relation to something outside of him so he he wasn't a creator and then he creates the world and now he has a relation to the world so he must have changed he's become a creator how could he be creator before he created if to create is to have a relation to something outside of him but there was nothing outside of him uh, or how could he be redeemer before he has redeemed his, his people. So relative attributes must therefore, in, the, in this person's question, must therefore imply a change in God. He has become creator or he has become redeemer. And so the two things that we can say in, in response to this, it's a, I, we understand where the question is coming from. The first thing is to remember that we have to distinguish between God's eternal decree within himself and what he has decreed which is outside of him. And so God being eternal, remember that eternity is not some forever stretching line going backwards and forwards. We said that eternity is God without succession. There's no this and then that and then this and then that in the being of God. So in God himself, he, he decrees all things he has eternally decreed to create. There was no time when God was not creator because he decreed to create. But you'll say, but then the world came into being. <laughs> yes, because time begins with creation, uh, but not with God. So there never was a time when God had not decreed to create. There never was a time when God had not decreed to do these things. And so that's the, the first principal way in which we make we protect God's immutability and his eternity when talking about relative attributes is to say that there's no succession. God can't pass from being one thing to another because he has decreed all these things eternally. There never was a time when he was not uh, or had not decreed to do these things, even though they come into time. The world comes into being in time. His people come into being, their redemption all of those things that he has decreed come into time and pass through a successive existence, but he does not. So there's no change in God. The second thing that we can say about God and relative attributes and why they, they do not violate the doctrine of divine immutability is that what does change, based on what we just asserted, what does change is everything else in relation to God, but not God himself. So if I stand here and Campbell sits on my right hand, and then Campbell moves over to my left hand, there is a change in relation to me, but I have not changed, he has changed. And so there is a change in relation, but it's not located in me, it's located in the one changing in relation to me. So God becomes my redeemer, 
but God does not become a redeemer when we are saved. Uh, I may move from lost and in my sins to saved and redeemed by God as I change in relation to him, but he has not changed who decreed to save me and who has brought about and effected my salvation. So the relative attributes do have relation to something outside of God, but they do not violate eternity or immutability for these two reasons. And I, I could have mentioned that last week, but I didn't, so I wanted to make sure that we uh, bring them up today. Last week, we looked at only one relative attribute, which was God's goodness and love. Goodness is really a, a positive attribute, but love is more a relative, God's goodness with relation to us. And so today, we're going to continue with the other relative attributes mentioned in our confession. Uh, and we'll see how far we get, um, not being in any kind of hurry. So I'm going to read uh, from our confession, chapter 2, paragraph 1, the portion that's relevant to what we've been studying, where we confess that the Lord our God is most loving, that he is most gracious, that he is most merciful, that he is most long-suffering, that he is abundant in goodness and truth, that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and rewards them that diligently seek him. And he is withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. So moving on from that first one of most loving, let's look at God as most gracious and merciful. And that's at least what I want to cover, if not moving on from that. So most gracious and most merciful. <clears throat> to, be, to be gracious is to give things freely to people. Um, if something is just freely given, it's a gratuity. You just say, here, have this. That's what we call a tip, usually a gratuity. Uh, in, in Spanish, something is gratis. It's, it's free. You just get it. So grace is giving, giving freely. And we can see that God is most gracious for several reasons. We would say that God is most gracious because everything he gives, he gives to those who are infinitely lesser than he is. When you tip a server or when you just give something to someone to be nice to them, we're all men and women and men and women. We're all on the same level, people being nice to people, people giving freely to other people. But when God gives freely, it's the, it's the one to whom everything is owed. Everyone owes everything to him because he provides all things. But he gives freely. He gives freely to those that are infinitely inferior to him in being, to creatures. The creatures should be offering everything to him, but he's the one giving to, to his people and to those whom he has made. So that even just that, we could say that God is most gracious. Who gives so liberally to those that are beneath them? I mean, the, the most we do is like <laughs> rescuing dogs <laughs> and giving them a home to live. But God gives to all his, all his creatures. Maybe we adopt a, a couple dogs that are beneath us in being, and that's nice, that's gracious, but it only goes so far. God graciously gives to all his creatures. But what really shows the graciousness of God is not just to give to, freely to those who are inferior to him, but to give freely to those who have offended him and sinned against him. If you want to adopt a dog, and it just gives you those big puppy eyes, and it instantly comes and snuggles you and wags its tail, 
you're, you're done. That, you know, that it got you. But if you want to, to adopt a dog and you get close to it and it snaps at you and it barks at you and it's growling and aggressive and clearly uh, hostile to you, you'd say, I'm going to look for a different dog to adopt. No, thank you. Um, there, are, there are plenty of dogs. I don't need to try to adopt this one that hates me in all things, clearly. Well, God is not just giving freely to those that are beneath him in being and who owe him everything. He also gives freely to sinners. He gives freely to sinners who have offended him, who live in violation of his laws, who live in, in ingratitude for all that he gives to them. Sometimes we give to people who have offended us, but they're like us. God is the most gracious in that he gives liberally good things to all his creatures, and he gives liberally good things to fallen, sinful creatures who hate him and are unthankful for all of the good things that he has given to them. And of course, this, as we said last week, God loves everyone with a generic, a common love of, of doing good to all, so also God is most gracious to all. He gives good things to everybody, even to the fallen creature. And the fact that God would give saving grace and to restore man to his innocence and then exalt man to glory uh, is you know, the, the abundance of the riches of the grace and the mercy of God. So God is most gracious for giving freely to his creatures that are beneath him, for giving freely to all his creatures that are fallen, and for giving saving grace and, and the fullness of, of heavenly blessings to his elect people in Jesus Christ. Our God is truly most gracious. Who, who can compete if we said, that's, that's pretty gracious? Could we put anyone else in this competition? It's not a competition, but could we, could we put anyone else near, near most? No, no, no one comes close. We are all fallen and miserable in ourselves. And it's only God's grace to us that then causes us to be gracious to others or his common grace that causes unbelievers to be gracious to others also. So grace implies giving freely. Giving freely implies another, someone else. That's why we would say that most gracious is a relative attribute. And really you could subsume this under goodness and love, uh, God's love to the creature fallen, his goodness in himself that he pours out on his creature. Um, so the, the title we used there was Benefactor, where we said, God, you are good and you do good from Psalm 119. God is most gracious. And I, I read something recently that was saying that, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm summing up what it was teaching. I was saying we would not know the sweetness of glory as well as we will if we did not know the, the bitterness of sin and misery. And so the fact that God permits the fall and man's misery and yet saves him from it in saving grace allows us to know his goodness in a way that we would not have known it had we never fallen and been rescued from that fallen condition. So his goodness doesn't, doesn't change. His goodness is unchanged, but our experience of it, our knowledge of it, our enjoyment of it is elevated because we would not know him to be gracious in the same way had man never fallen in sin. 
Let's move on to the second relative attribute to be covered this morning, which is God's mercy. We say that God is most merciful. And the definition of mercy is, is pivotal in this, uh, under this heading. So how, how would one define mercy? Well, if you're familiar with Spanish or Latin, then what's the Spanish word for mercy? I don't know if someone said that. I just, I just can't hear you. La misericordia. Mercy. Spanish misericordium. What is the, etymolo the etymology or the etymological definition? If we just take it apart to its roots and try to get a definition out of it, which doesn't always work for words, but sometimes it does. You know, uh, butterfly, you can't get the meaning of the word from its roots. But you can get the idea behind this word from these roots. What do we see here? Misery. What's, what's cord? The heart. Misery of heart. Mercy is misery of heart? What, what does that mean? This is coming from the idea, the definition, or the, the word comes from the idea that you have mercy on someone when you are moved to pity them. Your heart feels misery on their behalf because you see them suffering, and so you want to help them. On, whom, do you, whom do you help? The person that you pity. The person whose misery you have seen, and your heart has entered into their misery, and so you help them. You have compassion on them. You have pity on such a person. And so our mercy to others is dependent on our hearts being moved to experience or relate to or acknowledge the suffering of someone else. Because if you just don't care, you're not going to help them. You just don't care. You've not been moved to mercy. Think about all of those emotionally manipulative commercials that show either malnourished animals or sadly malnourished children and, and as, as good as those causes may be, this is not a criticism of those causes, how do people try to get you to give money to those causes? They want you to see the suffering of an animal or, or the suffering of a person so that your heart will be moved and then you'll open your purse because your heart has been opened also. They want you to be moved to mercy because you have heart misery with another person that's suffering. <clears throat> this depends on us identifying with the suffering of something else or someone else. I can feel their pain. I can, I can see it. I know what it's like, or I can at least perceive sufficiently what it's like to feel that, and so I will help them. But there's other things that we don't, we feel really no connection to because we're so unlike them. Um, if you think about a, a vegan, someone who lives a vegan lifestyle, one of the things that they avoid is they avoid anything with a central nervous system. They don't want to eat anything that, could, that, that has the physical capability of, ex, of sensory suffering. 
So they want to eat things, they will, or let's put it the other way, they will only eat things that don't have a central nervous system because they're afraid of, they don't want to inflict pain on anything. And then they feel, then they feel no, they know that plants are alive, have, have a, a life, a kind of life, but they don't feel any pang of guilt in their conscience because it has no suffering. Um, we would do the same thing perhaps with, with bugs. I'd <laughs> say, I don't care if this thing suffers, it's a bug. <laughs> you know, it's not like me, it's just a bug. It's nothing, it's not a human, it's not gonna talk to me and say, no, wait, please, don't do that. You just kill it. I mean, clearly it does run away and try to survive, but <laughs> you, you, you kill it because you don't care, or what you care about is the thing being dead. Your heart feels no misery for the, the dead spider, right? None. But for the malnourished child, you do feel heart misery because we, we feel their pain, or, or at least we don't want them to be in that kind of suffering. And we should be moved by, by those things. It doesn't mean that you have to give such an organization money for those purposes, but your heart should be moved when you see the suffering of others. Now, here's the problem. If that's how we define mercy, can the immutable, impassable, eternally blessed God be merciful? Peter dramatically turned off right at that moment. <laughs> Can God's heart pass through and experience our misery? Is that, is that possible for a God who, with, with whom there is no time, there is no succession of moments, who's eternally blessed in and of himself, eternally happy? Can the happiness of God be, be sullied and diminished by the suffering of, of humans? Can, his, can the heart of God somehow be, be shadowed and tarnished by the suffering of his creatures? People will say yes and no. How, how do we resolve this? You'll say, yes, the, the scriptures say, speak of God's heart and his compassion. But they also speak of God not being like us. If God is infinitely unlike us, the difference between us and an ant is nothing in comparison to the difference between us and God. God and us is of infinitely greater distance than, than us and an ant. How can God have mercy, therefore? Well, certain philosophers, not Christian philosophers, but like Greek philosophers, who had much wisdom in many things, but in this they were wrong, uh, they said, therefore, uh, a divine being, a God, cannot have mercy because that God must be eternally blessed in himself and cannot feel the, the pain and, and such things of his creatures. And so they said that God cannot, <clears throat> cannot have mercy, and therefore they even would at times say, and men should not be merciful either, lest we be deceived and susceptible to manipulation, blah, blah, blah. That's not true. Rather, def the definition of mercy needs to be changed. We need to use a different definition of mercy, and then we will better understand why it is we can say that God is the most merciful. So the definition of mercy that we should use is not heart misery, but rather that mercy is to help the helpless.
to have mercy on someone is to help someone in need of help, to help the helpless. And what we need to understand is that our mercy, our heart misery, is weak and imperfect because we won't do this, we won't actually be merciful until something moves us to mercy. But because God is free from all motion or influence, because he's impassable, nothing, nothing has to move him to help the helpless. He is able to help the helpless of himself and the infinity of his own goodness. He helps the helpless because he's good and because he's merciful. He is the one who helps the helpless. And because his mercy is not dependent on external influences or causes or motions or internal motions, therefore his mercy is the most free and the most abundant and the most able to help everyone who call upon him for help. So the fact that he cannot feel human misery is a good thing. And the fact that he, is, that he does not need to be moved to mercy is a good thing. It doesn't make him a rock. It makes him the most merciful because he is the one who helps the helpless, the one who is not like him, we already said most gracious, the one who has offended him most gracious and most merciful even to those who have sinned against him. So let's read two quotations from 16th century reformers the first one is from Wolfgang Musculus, such a cool name. And Wolfgang Musculus said this, this is a 16th century reformer. He said, there be sundry causes whereupon the hearts of men be moved unto mercy. So there are many different things that move our hearts to mercy. Now, what the causes of mercy be in God a man may safely enough search so that he consider the majesty of God as it is most excellent, most just, and most happy. That one man has compassion upon another that is afflicted, it is no strange matter, for there is one self-same nature in both. Man is like man, one quality of nature, the like frailty, baseness, and general wretchedness of their whole life, and deprivation or crookedness of mind. So that men have mercy on each other is not surprising. We're, we know each other. We're just like each other. But what has man in common with God? Nothing at all. He, that is God, is most excellent. We most base. He most righteous and we sinful. He happy in all respects and we unhappy and wretched in many respects. So that there is no cause of mercy in God which can come of any communicating of nature or something in common, having the same nature. There's no cause of mercy in God which can come of any communicating of nature, condition, life, and estate with us, whereas we do in all points beyond all measure vary from him. We're so unlike him. And yet for all that, he is so merciful that he delights also in mercy more than in sacrifice, quoting from scripture. Therefore, it remains <clears throat> that the greater the mercy is in God than it is in the hearts of men, and the less that the causes of men's compassion do take place in him, the more manifest it is that he hath no other cause of his mercy 
but his own incomparable goodness of nature, unto which we did also refer his lovingness towards man in the place before. So notice, you take away all the causes of mercy in us from God, and you're not left with the least merciful, you're actually left with the most merciful. It is his nature to be merciful. It is what he is, not what he has to be moved to be. You have to move me to mercy, but God simply is merciful. He is the one who delights in mercy. And he is merciful from the incomparable goodness of his own nature, not from a commonality of nature with man. And as he mentions there, which is how we understood his love, we said this last week, God is good in himself. He pours out his goodness on his creatures, and we call that love. Not because we have moved him to love us as he perceives something good in us, but because he delights to love, he delights to do good to his creatures, all of them. So also his mercy. He does, he, is not, he does not help us because he feels our pain. He does not help us because he's like us and identifies with our suffering. He helps us from his own infinite goodness, like whom there is no other. And then uh, Zanchius, Girolamo Zanchius, another 16th century reformer, makes a, a similar argument he said, and this is the common opinion of philosophers, as I mentioned earlier, that mercy is not in God in any sense because it includes the idea of heart misery and passion, which yet I do not simply approve. He's saying, I don't agree with the idea that there's no mercy in God at all. Why is it, Zanchius, that you don't agree with them? For the reason why they, that is philosophers, think thus is because they consider mercy in us and then transfer it from us unto God, thinking that it, is so prop that it is so properly and of itself called mercy as it is in us. And so for that, it cannot be so in God, namely, or to wit, with passion as it is in us. Therefore, they think it is unproperly attributed unto God in the scriptures. But it, but it is in my judgment far otherwise, for the name of mercy is first in God before it is in us, for it was in him first, and it is eternal in God, for God is merciful of his own eternal and simple essence. This is a helpful reminder that when we reason from certain things in the creature to God, if they are virtues, if they are good, they were in God originally. So we don't define what is in God based on what is in man. And so if you take man's heart misery and then move that to God, you'll say God can't have mercy. But if you start with God and say God is the one who helps the helpless, and then you move to man and you say men only help the helpless when their hearts are moved to do so, you see that God is abundantly merciful, the most merciful, because the causes of mercy that are in us are not in him, and he is able to help all those whom he will help. We don't start with man and then conclude in God. We, we use man to understand God, but we recognize that this is in God in a supreme, eminent, and perfect way. Now, the scriptures give us many, many examples and statements of God's mercy. So, for example, Exodus 33, verse 19. God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is able to do this freely, as he wills, as he pleases, because there's nothing that moves him. 
to be gracious or merciful. He does this of his own goodness and of his own will. Those upon whom he chooses to be gracious or have mercy, he will be gracious and have mercy on them. And they don't have to move him to it. Indeed, you, you can't. And God has declared what his will is. He has declared he will have mercy and he will be gracious to all those that ask him for mercy and grace in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has stated, I, the God who is good and merciful, will have mercy on all those who call upon me in Jesus Christ. So he has made his mercy available liberally, freely, to all who call upon him in that name. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Romans 10, verse 11. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If, if someone says, okay, I have... 10 instances of $100 to give away, and, but you need to apply. <laughs> you need to be chosen. You need to qualify for this grant, for this disbursement, this dispersal. We would say, okay, something's been made available, but someone has to make a choice and, and choose the qualifications. But God has said, no, no qualification. Just ask. Just call upon me for mercy. Call upon me in the name of my son, Jesus Christ, and I will forgive your sins. I will graciously and mercifully help the helpless and do good to those who have offended me if you call upon me in Jesus Christ. And so it, it makes a clear distinction between believer and unbeliever. Those who confess the name of Jesus receive mercy in his name. And those who don't believe don't ask for it. If you say, well, why, why aren't they saved? They haven't asked for mercy. The Lord commands all men to repent and call upon Jesus Christ. They do not obey and they do not believe. But as God's people, we call God our helper. That's the title for this relative attribute. When we talk of mercy, we speak of God as our helper, And the Psalms have many wonderful expressions of praising God for his mercy. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He helps the helpless. That's Psalm 46. Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. How is it that Christians can, can trust in the fact that God's mercies never come to an end? My mercy has, absolutely has limits. And even if my heart, uh, my, my purse will have limits before my heart too. <laughs> I, I may have a heart that's merciful very liberally, but I don't have a bank account that's able to keep up if I give myself enough credit for that, but we all have limits for our mercy, practically or emotionally, we might say. But for God, I can trust that his mercies are new every morning and, and they uh, never come to an end because they're not caused by heart misery. They're not caused by moving God to mercy, 
God is mercy itself. He is the source and the sum of mercy. And he, ha he helps the helpless from the infinity of his own goodness, doing good to his creatures, to all, and especially to his elect in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, when we rejoice that his steadfast love endures forever, that his mercies never come to an end and are new every morning, it's because of his immutability. It's because of his impassibility, his unchangingness, his unchangeability that we know he will always be the helper of the helpless. But he has willed, he has chosen, he has declared that his help will be upon those who call upon him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could add to this the, the third relative attribute here, most long-suffering, which just to simply make a comment about, when we say that God is long-suffering, God does not suffer, but to suffer is to allow something to happen. Well, that's one of the meanings of the word, long-suffering. And so we see God's goodness in the fact that even when his creatures go astray, for so long, and even when his creatures go astray at such a level of wickedness, nevertheless, he does not instantly destroy them, but rather his patience, as Peter talks about, uh, is for our salvation. God is most long-suffering because he permits wicked creatures to live in his good world at such a, a length of time that they are able to come to him who is most gracious and merciful and receive salvation from him. If God were like the Greek so-called deities or like the deities of all other religions, the moment he's offended, he would just destroy us all. But he's most long-suffering because we see him with, withholding, not, uh, well, more like delaying delaying his judgment and allowing us to live in a good world while the promises of the gospel go out to the ends of the earth. Who would hold back judgment when, and, and think about this, it's not just a few of his creatures that went astray. It's not just a few of the men. Every single man, woman, and child is born in sin and lives in defiance of him until his grace renews them. So God is most long-suffering for putting up with an entire world Billions of men and women who live in defiance of him who is most gracious <clears throat> and most long-suffering. Now, some will say, if God is mer most merciful, the helper of the helpless, and man by nature is fallen in sin and his will is enslaved to sin, why does God not help all the helpless? If he is mercy and not just moved to mercy, why doesn't he help all the helpless? And we have to go back to quoting Exodus chapter 33, where God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It is God who is free. He's most free. We already covered that. He's most free to show mercy to those upon whom he will show mercy. And we cannot penetrate the wisdom of God to know exactly why he has mercy on this one or this other. But it's also not our responsibility or even fruitful for us to ask that question, because what our duty is, Deuteronomy 29, 29, 
is to do the things that are revealed. And what is revealed is call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You will not be cast out. And so people who complain about election are looking at the wrong thing entirely. The gospel call has gone out and is completely true that everyone who calls upon the Lord for mercy in the name of Jesus Christ will receive it. And if someone says, well, God hasn't chosen me to salvation, you don't know that. <laughs> How do you know that? Believe. Believe. We can know who the elect are by their evidences, but no one can know who the reprobate are until they're in hell. So there's no good argument for not coming to God for mercy, nor can you accuse him, you didn't have mercy on me. You didn't call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as God's children in communion with him, we can take comfort in his love and his mercy, which is new every morning, which is new every day. And you don't have to pay him off like a mafia boss, you know, I hope the boss is in a good mood today, you know, or like Esther going before her husband, the king, Ahasuerus, and saying, I hope he extends the royal scepter, or I'm dead. It's not like that. Not with our Heavenly Father, who is loving and gracious and merciful, unchange unchangeably. Does he discipline us? Yes, he does, in love. But he does not get angry with his children. He does not have emotional states of being. Rather, our Heavenly Father is eternally blessed, and therefore we are blessed in Him. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, because He is most merciful. Well, let's stop there and conclude our lesson for today. Thank you for your attention.